thanks Zach for uh, leading us this morning. And I know he we recorded those a couple weeks ago, but uh, trying to get him to do a couple more, and he's happy to do that. So we'll have a little bit more variety. Um, still have some new ones from Andrew. Just it was kind of a busy week, uh, as you can imagine. We drove down to my mom, so it's about um, a six and a half hour drive, and somehow we actually made it down here in six and a half hours. We we only stopped once, even with. Uh, with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I don't know how that happened, but it did. We stopped once for gas and just kept going, and that was that. So anyways, uh, we're going to be heading back back to um, after as soon as we get done here. Uh, we're going to be taking off. So uh, this is week eight in the Psalms, and uh, this has actually been a lot more enjoyable for me, honestly, than I thought it was going to be uh, looking at the Psalms. And and I think just even just culturally, everything that's been going on, it was it would seem very um, providential that we went through Job at the start of the pandemic. Um, and then just with civil unrest and things going on surrounding George Floyd's uh, murder, that there's um, obviously um, the Psalms have been so insightful uh, just for lament, for reflection, for for worship, even in the midst of of struggle. Um, and suffering. And so, um, and then last week, just looking at Psalm 96 and just being able to, to ascribe to God the, the glory that's due his name and that he is worthy of that honor. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. One thing I did want to point out, though, that maybe um, not everyone's familiar with is that we actually, uh, all three campuses have been doing different Psalms. Um, for the most part, there might be one that overlaps. I think Pastor Steve a couple weeks uh, preached through Psalm 51 as well, and I'd done that a couple weeks before he did. And we didn't really talk about which Psalms we were going to do. It was just kind of all all open. And so there's 150, so we didn't think you know we might not um, overlap. And uh, so if, if if you just want to listen to another Psalm and just be encouraged in the Word, uh, feel free to just go on uh, hopecc.com and find the sermon tab, and and you'll be able to. Uh, maybe listen to some other um, psalms if if you'd be interested in that. So this week, we're specifically going to look at Psalm 110, 110. Um, This is actually uh, the most quoted psalm, at least um, the most ink spilt in the New Testament looking back at this psalm. It is a very popular psalm. Uh, The author of Hebrews, it's probably his favorite psalm. Um, Jesus quotes this psalm as well. Um, all of the um, gospels, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, all share the same uh, story from Jesus. And so we'll be looking at that at the end. And um, so the title of this sermon is just, The Lord Said to My Lord. And that will hopefully have a lot of significance when we get to the end of this. One thing that is uh, that I do want to mention, though, is that there is a a sermon or at least a character that we're going to be spending some time looking at this morning. His name is called Melchizedek, and that may be familiar. It may not be, and that's okay. Hopefully by the end of this, you'll go, wow, this Melchizedek guy is actually really cool, Um, and that would be great. But what I really want to do this morning is focus on the psalm, and we'll get into a little bit of who Melchizedek is. Um, But if if you want more information on that, a couple years ago, I don't even know when, two, three, four years ago, I actually did a sermon specifically on Melchizedek. Um, and so you could find that one uh, on the website as well if, if you're, you know, if, if your uh, curiosity is piqued uh, during uh, the sermon. So Psalm 110. So what's interesting is that what we're going to, we're going to see this Old Testament passage, and it's just three verses, and then we're going to see David and then the New Testament authors just expand on that. The fact that David mentions these three verses in Genesis um, as he's studying his Bible, he goes, wow, this 
this guy Melchizedek is significant. And I think that the Messiah who is coming um, will actually be a descendant in some way, shape, or form of this guy, Melchizedek. And so what is the significance there? And so really, uh, it was funny that yesterday I was kind of, you know, kind of wrapping up the sermon and I, and I had this phrase in my head and I couldn't, I couldn't think of it. And it was like the blank, the blank is in the details. The blank is in the details. What, what is that phrase? And I couldn't think of it. And I went out and uh, my step bro was sitting out there, Jordan, and I was like, what is the phrase, the blank is in the details? And he's like, the devil? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's it. How could I forget that? Yeah, so the devil is in the details. And this is really significant because later that night, uh, my son Henry doesn't really like uh, fireworks, any loud noises, any loud noises. If a toilet is too loud, he will freak out. So he just, so I'm, I'm learning how to, you know, handle him with, handle that. And um, anyways, we had all these fireworks. And he was not interested. He was kind of warming up to him a little bit. But once they got the big ones came out, wasn't a fan. Well, Jordan, uh, again, my stepbrother, he said, uh, hey, I've got these three. They're just sparks. They don't make any noise. And I was like, great. But Henry was like, nope, I don't want it. I'm going to bed. I'm going inside. So he went inside and going to bed. Well, Jordan then set off these three that were supposed to just be sparklers. And they were not. <laughs> they were very big, very loud, actual uh, mortar fireworks that went up. And so um, and then he, you know, looked at the tubes and was like, oh, oh, there's there's sparkly fireworks like they're they're not just sparkles, uh, not just the sparklers. Right. So the devil is in the details. And with this passage, what we're going to look at in Psalm 110, we're going to get there is that context is king. And so I want to look at the details a little bit more, because and when you when you look at Genesis 14, and just 18 through 20, it would be very easy to miss these verses. Uh, that in the context of the story, there's a there's a big battle that goes on, and some kings come out, and they're they're praising Abram, who kind of um, helped and kind of organized the the sortie against these these enemies. And there's just these random three verses in there. And and and, and again, if if we just skip over that, I think we really miss out on something really significant, right? Because as I've been saying, well, since as long as I've been your pastor, is that context is king. That we have to have understanding of what's going on. Do we need it? No. But again, I think it just helps us understand the gravity and the weight behind Psalm 110 even more. So Genesis 14, thir or excuse me, 18 uh, says this, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, so Abram then tithes and gives this guy, Melchizedek, this king and priest, a tithe. A tenth of everything that he owned, which was a lot at this point. All right, so who who is this guy? Well, again, looking at this passage in Genesis chapter 14, it says that Melchizedek was a king of Salem and a priest. I'll talk about what Salem is in just a second. But he was a king and a priest. And if we know anything about our Old Testament, and if you don't, hey, guess what? I'm gonna, that's, that's what I'm here for. That was a no-no. You were, you were not allowed to be a priest, a king, or a prophet. You, those could not overlap in any way, shape, or form. And Saul, the first king of Israel, actually, what well, he was a king, and he, would, he got tired of waiting on a priest to perform a, a, an incense or a sacrifice before he could go out um, into battle. And he said, forget it. He's taking too long. I'm going to do it myself. That was bad. That ended uh, his career as king of Israel. 
Um, God even says, I, I, I would have made you uh, the line, right? You, your, your throne would have been established forever. But because you did this thing, because you acted like a priest, when you are explicitly commanded not to act like a priest, you're done. And it says the Holy Spirit even leaves Saul, um, that, that power the Spirit was giving Saul to be a good leader and king to the people, gone. And so now that then was going to go through David, and King David would have been anointed. And that's who's now writing the psalm that we're going to look at. But yet, so that's what's that's very significant that we have here in this passage. He's a king and a priest, and he and he blesses Abraham, and and, and then Abram Abram gives a tenth. Okay, so so the big question when we look at this is when are we right? What's the context of this context before we get into Psalm one ten? And that is this is before Abram Abram's name is changed to Abraham. This is before God makes his covenant with Abraham. He's about to do that in the next chapter of Genesis, but he hasn't done that yet. What's significant about that is that there is no law. Well, how is it that Melchizedek can be a king and priest? Because there has not been a law written in Leviticus, a book for the Levites, those that priestly line to say, you can't do these things. If you are a priest, you stay in your lane. If you're a king, you stay in your lane. If you're a prophet, you stay in your lane. But what we'll see eventually, and what we're going to get out of this, is that Jesus fulfills all three of those offices of prophet, priest, and king. One other interesting thing about this character that we see in Genesis chapter 14 is that Melchizedek, um, I'm reading a quote here from Victor Hamilton in his book, uh, the book of Genesis chapter uh, chapters 1 through 17. Um, he says this, Melchizedek is connected with the city traditionally identified as Jerusalem. All right, so, so when we see king of Salem, that this is actually going to be changed once the Israelites take over and King David, that it's going to be Jerusalem. Uh, Psalm 76, 3 explicitly connects uh, Salem with Jerusalem or Zion. This indicates that a Sumerian name was given to Jerusalem long before David appeared, possibly when Jerusalem was an outlying trading post of the Sumerians. All right, so that's significant, right? Just maybe just it wouldn't really matter one way or the other if Melchizedek wasn't a king of what would eventually become Jerusalem. But there's some significance here that God is at work in the world even before there is a nation of Israel, right? That that should just make us go, oh, there is a there's a bigger plan here. Right, that there is no nation of Israel. There are no no Jewish. There's no Jewish religion even at this point. Abraham is eventually going to be called the father of the Jewish religion, but that hasn't even been established yet. Right. So so this is God is at work in all the world, and 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 what we see from this, and what we're going to see from Melchizedek, is that God cares about all people, not just one one ethne. Okay. So now. Let's get into David's psalm. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this, but as I read, I'm just gonna make a couple comments here and there, and then I'm really gonna let the book and the author of Hebrews uh, kind of interpret this for us this morning. But let me just mention a couple of things. So this is Psalm 110. It says, "The Lord says to my Lord," and I know I've said this several times, um, but I want to remind us that when we're reading in our English um, uh, Bibles. Uh, translations, that when Lord is in all caps, so capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord says to my Lord, and in my in this translation, and I think every single one of our um, English translations will have it this way, um, that when it's all caps, that is the covenant name for God. So Yahweh, right, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Yahweh says to my Lord, 
Yahweh says to my master, right? That's what that means. Lord just means master or king, um, Lord, right? So, so Yahweh says to my master, sit at my right hand. Right hand, yes, it, it, it can actually symbolize being seated on someone's right side. It's a phrase that we might even still use today. You know, he's, he's my number one guy. He, he, you know, he's my right hand man, whatever that may be. Um, it, it, it just symbolizes power and authority, right? If somebody uses that phrase, they don't mean this guy is actually on my right hand all the time. It just means that, that I trust him with everything, right? Um, and it's a position of power and authority. And he says, until I make your enemies uh, a, footstool for your, a footstool for your feet. So here's the, again, the context is Yahweh is talking, the father uh, of, of God, creator says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay. So, so Yahweh's in charge here, if you will, he's, he's in charge. And this Lord, this, what, and this Psalm is going to be to the Messiah. It's about the coming of the new Messiah, the, the Messiah, the savior, the Christ. He says, Yahweh says, I'm going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, at an appointed time. When the time is right and your enemies are under your feet, that's when things will happen, right? And it says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be, will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. Here we are. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so as King David is, is penning this psalm. He's writing this down, and he's saying there's something about the Messiah who's going to come that's in some way connected to this random dude that we meet in three verses in Genesis chapter 14, that this Messiah, this Savior, the Christ, will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then David continues, the Lord is at your right hand. Okay, so now he's back focused on Yahweh, back on the Father, back on God. He says, the Lord, the Messiah is at your right hand, and he will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. Okay, so when is that going to happen? Well, David doesn't tell us that, but and I'm not going to answer that question right now. I think Jesus does that. So I'm going to end with Jesus answering that question, with the Messiah answering that question of when will he crush kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. And he will drink from the brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. That this is actually going to be refreshing for the Messiah. right? That he's going to be strong and refreshed while the evil people suffer. Right? So what is so significant about Melchizedek? Why is it that, that King David, as he's studying his Bible and gets to Genesis chapter 14 and reads those three verses about Melchizedek and sees that Abram gives him a tithe, gives him a tenth of everything that he owns, that he puts in this psalm about the future Messiah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Why is that significant? Well, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 7, and it says this in verses 9 and 10. It says, one might even say that Levi, okay, so let's 
back up the train a little bit here. Okay, so you have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Right? These are the fathers of the Jewish faith, fathers of, of Christian faith, really, when we trace their, their line and their heritage. Then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, which will become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them, one of the sons is named Levi. And all of those uh, individuals that, that are descendants of Levi are the priests. Okay, so all the priests that will ever descend in the Jewish faith all come from Levi. That is the Levitical priesthood. He says, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth paid through Abraham, okay, so Abraham got a tithe from Melchizedek, uh, but then Abram then is going to give that dis his descendants, Levi, um, all, all of this tithe as well, okay? Because when Melchizedek made Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor, okay? So, so what's going on here? We have this Levitical priesthood that was specifically for one ethne, and then what happens is, is that Melchizedek comes and pays a tithe, saying, this isn't just about Israel, there's something really, really big going on here. It's not just one people group. Melchizedek is going to be for all people. So let's look at the superiority then of Christ over Melchizedek. And so when I when I look at, and the, the last time I preached on Melchizedek, I really focus more on that. I don't want to do that. I want to look at, at Jesus, yes, but the significance of this, of this psalm. Um, especially when we get to Christ. But the first thing that we see in the superiority of Christ over Melchizedek, because if he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, what is it about Christ's priesthood or the Melchizedekian, if you want to get fancy, priesthood over the Levitical priesthood? First, it's a finished work. It's a finished work. right? I, there's something about when you're, when you're just finished with something that just feels good. You're working on a puzzle, right? When you, when you can't find one puzzle piece, it's the most, it's one of the most irritating things that, that a human being could have to go through in their life. Uh, that you, you, but when you find it and you, and you put that puzzle piece in, it's finished. There's just something there, right? It is a finished work. Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this, day after day, every priest stands, this is going to be the Levitical priest that he's talking about, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties, whether it's, as we looked at last week, whether it's just blowing a trumpet, whether it's singing, whether it's uh, maybe even a shepherd priest who has to take care of the sheep that are going to be sacrificed one day, or it's going to be actually performing the, the rituals uh, and the customs within the temple or, or teaching. It says again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The sacrificial system that was put in place in the Old Testament for the Levites to do for their people can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, the Messiah, in the order of Melchizedek, had offered all time one sacrifice for sins, here's where we get the quote from the psalm. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. Okay, so... He's still waiting for the appointed time. All right, so he, he did this. He, he was a sacrifice once for all, and now he's now waiting until, until, excuse me, the father makes his enemies his footstools. Verse 14, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The uh, theological terms that, we, that, that, that is found right here in this verse, he says, by one sacrifice of Jesus, he has made perfect forever, 
perfect. I'm saved. The phrase is called justified. I am, I have justification period. I'm clean. I'm done. Those who are still being made holy, right? I'm, I'm done at the foot of the cross. My, 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 my sins are gone. They're removed as far as the East is from the West. And yet I'm still in the process of being made holy. That's the phrase where we get sanctification. So we see that it's a finished work. It's also a better work of the Levites. He says this, Hebrews 7, 22 to 25. He says, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant, of a better covenant. He's talking about Abraham and the Levites and the Mosaic covenant and all these covenants that God makes with his people in the Old Testament. He says, no, there is a better covenant in Christ. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, right? So the, there have been a lot of priests that did their duties as a priest, but it says that death prevented them from continuing their, their duties for their office. He says, well, because Jesus lives forever, you will be in the order of Melchizedek forever, has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That he's seated at the right hand, interceding on their behalf continually. He doesn't have to pass the mantle on to the next person who's going to come and live, you know, 40, 50, 60 years and then die. And then they got to, we got to start the whole process. So no, he's there, period. Seated in power and authority as a king and a priest and a prophet to us. So we saw that he is better because it is a finished work. It is a better work. And he's also a mediator between God and man. Looking at verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10, 10, the author says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Again, I know I've used this and I've shared this before, but if you're just checking out Hope, uh, Hope Lower Town, I want to just explain this a little bit, that, that in the tabernacle or the temple, um, you had to go through some main gates, get into this 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 area called the holy place. Um, and then there was this perfect cube room in the back where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And that was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And, and on the other side of this massive curtain, a curtain was, was the, the width of a man's hand, uh, right? That was, I don't, I don't know what that is, but it, it's thick. All right. Um, and this huge curtain split the, the holy place where, uh, where priests would perform their duties. They'd burn incense. There was some showbread. That's where you get the menorah would have been in there from the Jewish faith that it's, that it's right there. They light the candles. Um, and, 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 but then on the other side of that was the Ark of the Covenant. And only one day a year on the Day of Atonement would the high priest go into that space one time. And they'd go in there and they'd burn incense over the Ark of the Covenant and he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, all people, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that we can just go into the space that God, the Father, the holy God that we looked at last week, that we have confidence to enter into that space. Why? Not because of anything we've done, but because of the finished work, the better work. And because Christ is a mediator now, we can go into that place with confidence. He says this, by a new and living way, permanent way, opened us, opened for us through the curtain, right? That's that, that veil, that massive thing through his body, 
right? That, that his body, the sacrifice, that he, in a way, is this curtain. And if we pass through Christ, then we have access to the most holy place, the holy of holies, that presence of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, okay? Again, this is another Old Testament reference using hyssop, that when someone was guilty of, or sorry, excuse me, back up, that when somebody had some kind of disease or even was guilty of some kind of penalty or crime that, reser- that deserved cleansing, that they would take a branch, a hyssop branch, and they would dip it in blood and they would sprinkle them and say, you're clean, you're clean, you're clean. And now the author here is saying, that's you, that's you and me, that's us that our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Do you understand that? Not just cleanse from sin, not just to be washed and cleansed so now I'm no longer dirty. This is such a deep clean that it cleans my conscience. Right? Last week I talked about moral injury. It was this phrase that is used in AV hospitals. Um, uh, VA hospitals, and it was a joke, sorry, uh, from last week, had to be there. Um, that we talk about this moral injury that people can occur when they, when they do something that goes against their, their conscience, and he's saying that Jesus has actually even erased that. It's a phrase, again, a theological term that I use from time to time called expiation, that when Jesus died for my sin, he removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. He remembers it no more. And so why do I have to feel guilty about it? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ is that I don't have to feel guilty and burdened by my sin. He died so that we can be free. You have been set free to be free. So don't submit under that yoke of bondage of slavery of sin. We've been set free from that. And so I am not defined by my sin. I'm not defined by, yes, that was something I used to do. I mean, that's something I still struggle with. And that's something I still do. That's not me. I am in Christ, but yet I am depraved and I continually need to be made holy. And I can only do that through Christ, that we have been cleansed from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold, hold on. Hold fast, unswervingly, to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And so we can get into apologetics, right? If you've been listening to my podcast at all, we can we can try to get into this. But at the end of the day, it's not a great cop-out. It's faith. And matter of fact, the author of Hebrews says faith is this. It's the assurance of things not seen. It's actually proof of what I can't see. Let us hold fast. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised Jesus, guarantor of our souls, is faithful. So what does Jesus say about himself in this passage, about this passage? Okay, so he's, Jesus is going to quote Psalm 110. Why and what is he talking about? So Mark chapter 12, let me just say this, explain what's going on here, and then, and then, and then we'll, be, we'll be done, okay? But hopefully this will answer the question of, in the psalm, uh, when will the enemies be made a footstool? Mark chapter 12, uh, and this is recorded again in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37 says this. 
while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, okay, so he's at the temple. Now they got this massive structure behind him. Uh, and in there is a place called the Holy of Holies, right? All this, all the symbolism, everything's going on is in all their minds. So while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, which again, he's only addressing Jews. Jews were only allowed in the temple courts. I guess he was out in the, in the court of Gentiles. So never mind. In fact, I just fact checked myself and I was wrong. So there, there could have been mixed company here. Uh, but for sure, if somebody was a Gentile in the court of Gentiles, they were a Gentile who converted to the Jewish faith, most likely, or, or tourists taking pictures. While Jesus was teaching the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? All right, this is what he's talking about. Talking about this psalm, Psalm 110. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Okay, the son of David is the most used uh, phrase for the future Messiah, for the Christ, for the Savior of, uh, of all people, but specifically in their minds of the Jewish faith, that a Messiah was going to come. He's saying, why do they call him the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. All right, so now there's something significant about that way, those phrases of the Lord said to my Lord. And Jesus, is that's his main point. That when David, King David, pens these words in this psalm, talking about a future Messiah, why does he say the Lord? Why does he use that word? If he's going to be the son of David, why wouldn't he just say, Yahweh said to a descendant of mine? <laughs> right? That, that's, his, that's his point here. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Here's why this is significant. Because who in the world is the master of the most powerful man in the world? King David at the time was the most powerful, most wealthy individual in all of the world. And he yet says, my Lord, my master. This is significant. Because when we look at this passage, right, there's a phrase, and I've used it before. Man, I'm using a lot of big terms here. I'm hoping I'm defining them well for you. But that, that phrase, metalepsis. Right, so when people are hearing this psalm, Psalm 110 being read, even though, even though Jesus only reads one little verse from or quotes a verse from it, they're remembering all seven. They remember the whole thing. And the whole thing talks about the Messiah coming, but he's going to conquer. He's a son of David. And that's why that phrase that is most popular usage of the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah is the son of David because David conquered all the enemies. He set his people free. They got their land back under King David, all these things, and he ruled with authority and power. And they said, yeah, we want that son of David to come back, just like that psalm said. And I want him to conquer all the enemies and put them under their feet. That's what they're thinking. And he says, I want you to think something else about this Messiah, that the Messiah is not just the son of David. He's not going to simply conquer some other, excuse me, other individuals around so that Israel can be free. It's more than that. He's not just the son of David. He is the Lord of David. Why is that significant? Well, Lord uh, in Greek, and, I, and I, if you know me, I don't, I don't normally get into the Greek, but it's actually kind of significant here in the context. Lord in Greek is just translated kurios. That just means master, just means Lord, king. It's all, all it necessarily means. 
The Septuagint, that was the Greek interpretation of the Old Testament, which is used a lot. Jesus quotes uh, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, a lot. So the Septuagint name for God in the Old Testament is also translated Lord, Kyrios. Okay? So when they would read it in their Greek, um, they would know that it's talking about Yahweh, but it's it's Kyrios said to Kyrios. Lord said Lord, right? Which is why we still do that, but we differentiate all caps because we have Hebrew text now that we know that, that that's gives us a little bit more clarity on that. In other words, that when they hear Jesus say the Son of God isn't just the Son of David, the Messiah isn't just the Son of David. He's also the Lord of David. He's getting them all then now to think this Messiah is going to bring people to God. He's going to allow all people, all men and women, and again, because he is of the order of Melchizedek, all people of every tribe and nation and tongue will be brought to God. All men and women matter, and all men and women, he brings them to God. So when will this happen? Is there going to be a kingdom that's going to happen, right? And what he's doing and what Jesus always does is he takes our understanding of the world in front of us and he turns it upside down. He flips it on its head. And so while they're all thinking, son of David, he's going to capture, he's going to kick the Romans out, he's going to set us free. Jesus, you're the guy, you're the Messiah. Let's go, let's do this, let's get up in arms, let's capture, let's take our land back. And he says, you understand, it's not just that. That day will come, but that's not up to me even. Right, as we see in the Psalm and as we see in all over the place, the New Testament, that, that only the Father knows. Jesus says that only the Father knows when this is going to happen, when my enemies will be made my footstool. But what I tell you what has happened is I have made a way for every man and every woman, regardless of background, ethnicity, race, and culture, to come to me and to the Father. I have made a way to God. So, in closing, just in gospel application, do you believe that God's ultimate plan of redemption from the very beginning was for Jesus to save all people? I think that's something that we need to be reminded of in our time, that this is not just some nationalistic pride, even though, you know, celebrating the 4th of July and doing fireworks and, you know, we made some sparkler bombs and blew up some watermelons. Things got a little crazy. Uh, I still have all my fingers and toes. Everything's good. We're all, we're all happy and healthy. It was, it was fun. It's great. Let's celebrate our country by blowing stuff up. I don't understand that, but hey, that's what we're going to do. It's not about nationalism. It's not about me. It's about all people coming to God through Christ, through the Messiah, as the Lord of David. But we wait for that day when the Son of David will come. <laughs> that it's the same person, it's the same Jesus, it's the same God. And yet we wait patiently with confidence because the one who promised is faithful. The second thing I want you to think about and pray about Maybe confess if you need it. Do you need any part of the finished work of Christ to change you today? And I think we saw that from this of, of is, is Jesus the Lord of your life? That you've been justified. You have been made perfect. And yet we are still in this process of being made holy. But are there things that we're just struggling with? Whatever that may be. Whatever your thing is, it's probably different from my thing, but I still need to be in this process of being made holy. But you know what I need to remember? I think what helps us win this fight 
is that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. That I have actually been cleansed of a guilty conscience. I've been set free. And that Christ has cleansed me even from my conscience. I need that. I think we all need that. So you bow your head and pray with me. And then after I finish, we will enter into a time of, of communion, a time of reflection, uh, time of confession, um, and then just uh, reflecting and listening to a few more songs or singing, uh, worshiping together. Um, and then I will, I will close us uh, this morning. So you bow your heads and, and pray with me wherever you are and whatever is going on in your, in your lives right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're good. As we looked last week, uh, we want to ascribe to you the glory due your name. And we can do that because you have made a way. You have made a better covenant through your son, through his shed blood for us. That as fully God, fully man, in this order of Melchizedek, a priest that will be established forever, that is a finished work, a better work, that we have a, a mediator who cannot die, who lives forever, who rose from the dead and conquered the grave so that he can cleanse my soul and even my conscience from guilt, God, would we remember that? I, I just feel there are people that are listening now or maybe listening in the future that just need to hear that Jesus has forgiven them and that he is also then the only one that can help them become more holy. I need that. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that there is going to be a day that he will return and all, those, all that conquering language that we hear about the Messiah in the Old Testament will finally be true. That he will right all the wrongs. That the enemies will be made his footstool. And only those who have passed through that curtain, that veil, through the body of Christ into your presence, that the only reason why I can talk to the creator of the universe right now, one-on-one -on -one, and with other people listening, even in the future because you're out of time, which blows my mind, is because of the blood of Christ. God, you're good. Thank you for your son, guarantor of our faith and our freedom that we have in you. To you be the honor and glory and praise forever and ever. And it's in Christ's name, Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.